Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, we'll talk tax and its impact on the lives of taxpayers and tax professionals. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. As new Supreme Court opinions are released this summer, some taxpayers are still scrambling to figure out how to comply with the ruling from two years ago, Wayfair. More than 40 states have tweaked their sales tax laws since that 2018 Supreme Court ruling. That ruling in South Dakota versus Wayfair Inc., Overstock.com Inc., and Newegg Inc., mostly just called Wayfair, focused on whether physical presence requirements for sales tax should stand. The idea that you could only impose sales tax on sales where a retailer maintained a physical presence in a state had previously been established in a case called National Bellas Hess and was affirmed in Quilcor versus North Dakota. But the advent and growth of internet sales has complicated the issue. When Quill was decided, fewer than 2% of Americans had access to the internet. The rate is now more than 90%. Online shopping is now as common as watching television and is changing just as rapidly. Part of that change was a push from states to expand sales tax requirements to online sales. With Wayfair, the Supreme Court essentially killed Quill, ruling that states have broad authority to require online retailers to collect sales taxes. Since that ruling, of the 45 states that have a general sales tax, 43 now have adopted an economic nexus law or rule. These changes can be challenging for retailers. Sellers need to figure out which laws affects them, and that means accounting for sales by state, and in some states, tracking by jurisdiction. That can make tax compliance burdensome for some sellers, especially small to mid-sized businesses. And that's exactly what our guest today says is happening. Brad Scott is the finance director at his wife's family business, Halstead Bead, located in Prescott, Arizona. Halstead was launched in Phoenix in 1973 and has been owned and operated by the Halstead family ever since. They take great pride in being a family business that puts people and integrity first. But according to Brad, keeping up with the burdens placed on them by Wayfair has proved to be a challenge. Thanks for being on the show, Brad. Thanks, Kelly. I appreciate the offer. So I know that you're a finance guy and you've done the books for Halstead for a bit now, but Wayfair kind of changed everything. So tell me a little bit about like how that happened and how you guys have responded. Well, as you're aware, the, the South Dakota decided to take um, Wayfair to court a few years ago to overcome the Quill decision. And they found in Wayfair a, a pretty unsympathetic defendant, Wayfair being about 1,100 times larger than Halstead was at the time. And as a result of that, the court looked at the size of the company, and I think they made the estimation that the company had the resources to be able to comply with this. The fact of the ruling is when it starts to be applied to smaller businesses, such as Halstead, we have a much smaller resource pool from which to pull. Mm -hmm. And when we are trying to comply, we are facing the same level of challenges that Wayfair is with a much smaller team of people in the company, as well as outside resources, uh, such as our accounting firm and our, our legal representation within Arizona. Right. That's something I'm hearing actually from small businesses across the country is that The compliance burdens are the same for all small businesses, no matter the size of the business overall. So I know that you've talked about this before and said, when you talk about the expending resources, 
you've had to spend a lot of money to try and comply. Can you kind of give us an idea of what that means and what you mean by efforts to comply? Are we talking about hiring extra people? Are we talking about buying extra software? Like what kinds of hoops and and things do you have to jump through and how do you tackle those? Well, going back to the case, I'm glad you bring this up because there are a number of different factors that are involved. And going back to the case, you look at the software companies that were arguing that they had a a solution that was available. And in in some instances, they said it was both free and easy for companies to use. What we have found is that when you start dealing with one of these software companies, you first have to integrate their package into your own IT administrative system. And so while access to the system, the software system from the um, sales tax companies may be free, integrating it into our own system was not. We spent almost $30,000 just to tie our software into the software company that was doing the sales tax. So right out the gate, we were running into those economic challenges. Then when you start looking across the 45 states that have a sales tax collection obligation, none of them have the same thresholds or requirements. And so while I imagine some of the larger companies that have specialists for each state are capable of going to specific people and saying, hey, how do we handle, let's say, Arkansas, for example. You know, they have a team of people that are capable of looking at the different states, different requirements, and they can rely on the expertise of those individuals. Whereas a company of our size, I've been dealing with this with my wife for the last two years. And to say that we're experts in salt is really an overstatement by a long shot. We've learned everything in the last two years. We've learned it on our own because the resources that we have here available to us, you know, they're, they're going to have to learn it as well. So we can either pay them to learn it for us or we can pay ourselves to learn it for ourselves. We did have to hire an assistant. We are primarily a wholesale company, and so we have the exemption certificate challenge as well. So I hired an assistant in the last year to make sure that our exemption certificates are verified and valid across the board because without those exemption certificates, every single transaction that they represent would be taxable. So we've got to make sure that anything that we are not collecting tax on is provable to be untaxable. The software issue is about $30,000. It had some learning exercises. I, I took a number of different courses, and then we've had an outside audit done just to make sure that we understood those courses were being processed correctly. So that was another $30,000 in expenses just on the education side. And then you're looking at the labor that you put into this, and it's $170,000 in labor. Now, that includes the educational portion of it, but we are spending almost $5,000 a month just complying with this. This is all mandatory, right? This isn't optional. So, for example, you mentioned Arkansas. If you're going to sell in Arkansas, it doesn't matter whether you sell $1 or $10 million. If you're selling in Arkansas, you have to comply with these rules. and and I guess that's sort of the the challenge for smaller businesses is, does it make you question where you want to do business? It does. And I, I think it's it's great that you just brought up that threshold of $1. Um, Arkansas actually has a higher threshold than that. Kansas has a $1 threshold or a single transaction threshold. But Arkansas, I think, is 100000 if I remember off the top of my head. And if you look at Arizona, our threshold this year is $150,000. If you look at California, it's $500,000. You've got to maintain that database of information just in terms of threshold to know where you where you have an obligation and where you're still not meeting threshold. Arizona was part of that that group last year, right? That changed their thresholds, I think, because there were about it was half dozen states that changed their threshold in 2019 
at the end of 2019. And it was also like in October, I want to say it was it was not I, I kind of to your point, I think that the the laws not only are they different for each state in terms of thresholds, but they're changing. They're they're changing, you know, not just in 2018 with Wayfair, but they changed in 2019. And as states possibly want more money, that could change again. And I guess that's part of the challenge is keeping up. So how do you do it? Yeah, you're right. It is changing all the time. And Prior to 2018, I very rarely paid attention to what was happening at the state level legislative-wise. And now I've become very familiar with the legislative calendar for states. And so I know if, I'll go back to Arizona again because I've been working with them. I know that they're in session typically through the end of April or sometime into the middle of May. So I don't want to actually, I don't even want to do any research into what's going on in the state of Arizona until after they're out out of session because during that period in session, things are in flux. And so I've got to wait until the latter half of the year to do a complete audit across the entire country to make sure that whatever changes they've implemented, we're, we're familiar with and complying with. Last year was kind of the granddaddy of all years, and I'm hoping that remains so. So we did that complete audit at the beginning of the year just to make sure that what we had set up very quickly at the end of 2018 was right. Mm-hmm. At the end of 2019, I went through and did another complete audit And my assistant and I are about to resume that project again this month because most states are no longer in session. And we can go through and we can make sure that, you know, the statistics that we have on on file for each of the states are accurate. And if they're not, we can make those changes to reflect what they currently are. But we're going to have to do it again next year and the year after that and the year after that unless Congress steps up and says we need some uniformity or unless the states stand up and say, you know, this is affecting our own constituent businesses as much as it is as it is the remote sellers across the country. Perhaps it would be in our interest uh, economically to band together with the sta- other states from across the country and, and create a system of uniformity and simplicity. Right. And so is that kind of what you've been, I know you've uh, testified before Congress, is that what you're pushing for is a, a more uniform way of dealing with the sales tax? Yes. Again, going back to you know the complexity that we've been discussing for the last few minutes, it creates an enormous headache for our company every year, and it's creating headaches for a lot of other companies across the country. And those aren't efficiency headaches; those are just additional bureaucratic uh, hurdle headaches. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really benefit our customers. It doesn't benefit our, our staff. It, it doesn't really benefit anybody. And I think if you look at the compliance rates across the country, it's not even benefiting the states themselves. If compliance were easier, it would be a lot simpler for a company of our size to comply. And in fact, I've got data for the SST states, the streamlined sales tax division states, where we don't hit thresholds, but we're complying voluntarily. You know, over the last year and a half, we have sent them an average of almost $1,200 a month just because they made it easy enough for us to comply simply. Right. I think one of the things that sort of come out in some of the articles that other small businesses have talked about, you've alluded to this, of course, is it's not just the cost, like you keep talking about the cost, but it's it's the burden and the stress. And, and one of the things that I know that small businesses stress about is, let's say they're doing what you're doing, and they feel like they've got it all right. But what if they don't? I mean, that's, I think, one of the concerns, right, moving forward is, what about the things that you might have missed, either because you weren't able to comply, the laws changed, and you didn't know about it. And down the road, that could mean audits or other enforcement activities, which could be potentially devastating for smaller businesses. So is that something that you guys talk about in terms of 
what happens down the road, not just complying today? It is. And ideally, we'd be able to reach out to our CPA in town to get clarification on a number of things. But he passed the the CPA exam, as, as every CPA does. But he's qualified and licensed within the state of Arizona. He's not familiar with what's going on in Rhode Island, New York. And so last year we reached out to him to ask how we were doing. And his his honest response was, I'm not well enough versed in all of these states to be able to give you an accurate assessment right now. He did say that he could do it for us, but we would be paying him for research time. So what happened to us at that point in time, it it creates a gap in service for small businesses. And Mm -hmm. we were forced to go to one of the larger firms across the country, which, you know, they, they, they charge more than our local CPA, which is understandable. They have a much more comprehensive understanding of the salt policies from across the country, but they don't really suit the business of our characteristic. And frankly, a company of our size, doesn't really interest most of the big six. They're not looking for $60 firms. They're looking for $600 million firms. And so we've got ourselves that problem where, yes, we need the experience and the qualifications of those massive firms, but they're not interested in us. And the companies that are interested in us can't give us the same level of, of instruction and care. Right. When I was looking at your, your testimony, you had this, I thought it was a brilliant quote. You said, The expectation that one person can bring a company into compliance as effectively as an entire department at a major corporation, I am that one person, and I can tell you it's impossible. So kind of building on what you just said about accounting services, and I assume legal services kind of in the same boat, it's you're asking people to to redesign their companies in order to comply with the rules. Last November, I was invited to take part in the Bloomberg tax forum in D.C. I was a little out of my depth. I sat in the audience for several hours listening to one company after another discuss the SALT team, all the experts they had, and basically a team that was developed years of growth while companies organically moved between states determining when they wanted to move once they had enough resources to be able to comply with that state. And I As I sat there, I thought to myself, you know, this is all fantastic. These guys are talking about their teams. They're talking about all the resources they have. Uh, But the truth of the matter is a company of our size, we don't have the finances to be able to develop a team like that. So now we've got to go outsource it somewhere if we can even afford to do that. And it just, it dawned on me in that moment that, you know, Wayfair in 2018 was 1,100 times larger than Halstead. They had the resources to build the team. They were still a single state company. They were in Connecticut. We're in Arizona, and I'm perfectly capable of, of managing our Arizona and, and federal tax policy. But when I start to look at the other states, I don't have that team that Wayfair can generate. I don't have the team that Walmart already has. I don't have the team that a new egg already has. I only have myself. And the notion that one person is capable of managing an entire salt department all by themselves as efficiently and as effectively as a major corporation, it's it's not grounded in reality. Right. So, uh, so you've been speaking out about this. Um, have you found allies in Congress? Have you found allies in other small businesses? I have found some allies in other small businesses. Many of them are not comfortable coming forward because they are not sure that they are either complying correctly or many of them know or believe 
they know they can't, they're not complying. They know they're incapable of complying. They believed Congress was going to take care of this. And now they're more than two years after the decision and they haven't done anything um, in, in the way that we have. And so they, they can't put their hands up because it points a bullseye on their back. As far as legislators in Congress, I have found some, some champions that are interested in fighting for small businesses. Senators in Hassan and Shaheen from New Hampshire, Senators Merkley and Wyden from Oregon are, are very interested in this. Now, those are both states without a, a sales tax, so that, that puts them in a difficult spot because they're fighting against a bunch of states that do have sales tax. So what it comes down to is, is finding representatives or senators from states that have sales tax that are asking for simplification. And here in Arizona last year, we met with several state representatives and senators, and the Senator Leach, Vince Leach from Tucson, jumped up really quickly and said, you know, this is something that we've been very concerned about. And he, along with Representative Ben Toma and Representative Steve Pierce, drafted legislation, it's a concurrent memorial within the state of Arizona, that asked the federal government for guidelines on uniformity and simplicity. And that was passed unanimously through both our state house and state senate earlier this year. So I, I think there is there is an interest in it. It's just that there are so many different voices out there that are giving contradictory information that the people that are interested in it don't know that there are others around yet. And I'm I'm hopeful that that will happen. After the hearing that I was taking part in that I took part in in March, there was some momentum, but coronavirus has kind of sidelined just about anything at the federal level at this point. Sure. I was wondering, though, kind of when, when you were talking about timing, while coronavirus has kind of stalled a lot of government action, I wonder if because of the stay-at-home activities, and I'm on the East Coast and Northeast, and we've actually been subject to extensive stay-at-home orders for a bit, I wonder if the uptick and perhaps increased dependency on online shopping, which is definitely something that's happened in our in our area, might change some minds in terms of, you know, because I, I do think that there are some folks in Congress who think of online businesses as simply an extension of brick and mortar stores, right? I think that there, when you mentioned Walmart, for example, I think they don't think of them as separate businesses, but you guys are an example of you're online only, correct? Correct. Right. I think that there's going to be an increased awareness of companies that don't have physical presence. And I also think that coronavirus may change the way some companies do business in terms of maybe migrating to an online only platform. Although I, I appreciate that you may be frustrated while things are stalled a bit. I do wonder if maybe you can find some additional allies in a kind of in a post-COVID crisis world. I'm hopeful. I'm pretty new to the advocacy world. It was July of last year when I first kind of put my hand up at the, net, the federal level and only a few months before that where I did it at the state level. What I keep hearing is that early in a session right after election, it's easier to find people that are looking for new legislative topics. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that if we can achieve something at the end of this year, that maybe once the, um, the new Congress brought in in January, then we'll be able to find somebody at that point in time who's interested. Because you mentioned it earlier, as long as you're thinking about the revenue side of things, remote sellers are an absolutely fantastic target, but remote sellers are also constituent businesses. And I think that's where a lot of things have been lost in the conversation. Right. If you're talking about a remote seller from another state, 
then it's easy to say, well, yeah, sure, they should be collecting money for us. But if you're talking about your own constituent businesses that are struggling under the burdens of other states, then I think that there's a degree of sympathy that, that could probably lead to more action. And I think that one of the, the points you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of collateral business that's going away as a result of this too. And, and you, you mentioned it earlier when you talked about your, your CPA, that there are smaller accounting firms, smaller law firms, I imagine other kinds of support-based companies that maybe bookkeepers that can be put out of work if this continues because they can't assist the hostages of the world anymore. And, you know, now they're competing against one of the big, bigger accounting companies. I certainly think that that is a concern that, to be honest, I've not heard raised a lot. I know we've had some chatter amongst some of the smaller law firms about compliance and tying yourself to some of the bigger companies and where is that threshold. But I, I think that the, the collateral business that can be lost from this is something that should be talked about more, I think. I do too. I, you know, I, I don't know how many people come out of school thinking that they want to go work for one of the big six. There's, there are a lot of people like myself that want to live in a small town. I live in Prescott, Arizona. The population of our, the three towns surrounding us amounts to only 100,000 people, and we're pretty far removed from the world. But I live in a forest. Mm-hmm. There are mountains outside my house. You know, I made choices in life that brought me to this place. Right. And I know there are a lot of CPAs and attorneys and insurance people, you know, support structure type businesses for other small businesses that are located in these small places for the exact same reasons. And if the reach from other states is going to stretch into small towns, then those people are either going to have to adapt and grow into a bigger business, which ultimately means move. Or they're going to have to switch into a different line of business altogether. And, you know, while I think it's fantastic that there are a lot of CPAs in the country, I wonder what number or what percentage of those people are actually qualified to handle 50 state compliance for SALT purposes. I know a lot of small businesses that are not CPA-based or not. And then, so you've got two problems. A, are, are those CPAs going to be able to re- represent the small businesses? And then which is an even greater concern, in my opinion, the companies that are currently not compliant are facing real bankruptcy futures if they don't get on board soon, or they may already be in that position. And, and as you're familiar with, with a lot of small businesses, there's a lot of leverage that goes in, or leveraging that goes into running those, the finances. If small businesses start to crumble, small businesses are also going to start losing their customer base. So it's two different issues. As companies like ours start to disappear because of the sales tax assessments by other states, then the customer base for the CPA firms disappears. And then as those customers, those CPA firms are not capable of helping a company be 50-state compliance, then their relevance disappears too. Right. If I'm an accountant sitting in my uh, living room listening, and I'm wondering what I can do, you know, what are the options? What are you encouraging people to do? If you're an accountant, you know, the, a- the AICPA was one of the other witness groups at the, the hearing in March. They are familiar with this. Reach out to your AICPA representative and let them know that you're concerned about this. I have yet to meet a small business owner that doesn't want to comply. Right. The real challenge is that small business owners can't comply, either because it's so complex that they don't understand it, or it's an expensive endeavor and they don't have the resources for it. And so, CPAs have a fantastic voice when it comes to airing the necessity for simplicity and uniformity. 
And if they are joining the voice of small businesses saying, hey, this isn't a non-starter, this is just a reboot, then we've got a larger voice of people that are going to get together and hopefully influence lawmakers to recognize that they're creating a problem that doesn't need to exist. Are you working with any small business groups that are banding together and, and trying to be louder? Or any that you can recommend to small businesses that might be thinking, you know, how can I be involved? How can I be heard? Well, the NFIB, the National Federation of Independent Businesses, is becoming increasingly aware of this issue. The ACMA, which is the American Catalog Mailers Association, is extremely familiar with this issue. And in fact, um, there were two of the other witnesses at the hearing in March. There was one from NFIB and one from ACMA. The Online Merchants Guild, or LMG, is another group. They are more focused on the Amazon seller side of things, which is the marketplace facilitator angle. So, yeah, there are a number of different groups that are invested in this. But, you know, unfortunately, with a lot of small business owners, until it's a problem, you don't address it. And that's not because you don't want to. In this case, it's because you don't even know it's a problem. There was a recent survey put out by Avalara, whereby you know, fewer than 50% of small businesses, 500 employees and smaller were complying with this. And if you looked at businesses that were 20 and smaller, fewer than 50% even knew about it. So that's, that's a real problem. And a lot of times when you're finding out that you've got an issue on your hands, it's not from the state, it's not from the Department of Revenue, it's not from any government source. It's, it is usually from your, your CPA. And they'll say, you know, I'm reading more about Wayfair. And I think you may have a problem on your hands. But it's June or July. Wow, it's July, isn't it? It's July of 2020. <laughs> this decision was two years ago. So, right. you know, it's not like you found a, a, a hole in your roof and it's been leaking for 10 minutes. You, you found a hole in your roof that's been leaking for two years. And what do you do now? So in the what do you do now kind of category, what, what comes next for you and your company? Like, what's your next move? We have been complying since the beginning. And we are remaining compliant, and we've built up a pretty robust system to continue to operate efficiently and effectively. As far as Halted is concerned, we just continue moving forward. Um, our greatest concern right now, obviously, is going to be COVID, coronavirus, and the impacts it's having on the economy at large. But I have I've developed kind of a love-hate affair with Wayfair. And obviously, the hate side of it is that it wasn't done well. But the love affair part of it is that I am meeting more and more companies that are are looking to get involved, at least in compliance. And they need somebody to, I hate to say this, but they need somebody to air the grievances for them because they can't come forward and do it themselves. And so um, I just keep talking and, you know, hopefully... Hopefully, at some point in time, we get enough people that are singing the same song that states and the federal government recognize the need for legislation. And if not, maybe I fade into the background and just go back to business. <laughs> well, one of the things that you uh, you mentioned, and I'll make sure I put some of these links in the show notes for folks to uh, take a look at. But one of the things you mentioned when you said you didn't think uh, that what Wayfair was, I think you said done well. I did mention it in the history when I was talking earlier, but when you read the opinions, it's very clear that at least the justices expect that there's going to be a Wayfair too, because as you mentioned, there's some, there's some holes that weren't filled. The court only addresses what's before it. So I think they're going to wait and see 
whether these uh, issues get brought back. But I do think that there are some some compliance holes that weren't brought up in, or they were brought up, but perhaps not addressed in the first Wayfair opinion. So again, it'll be interesting to see if there is a second. But those compliance issues are exactly what were were referenced in uh, one of the the comments that, and again, I'll make sure I put it in the the show notes. But there's some some pretty great language that suggests that the the justices are aware we might visit this again. So uh, the timing could be right. We'll see. <laughs> I hope so. The, the streamlined sales tax governing board, I, I think, made a lot of attempts to do this well. They do make it simpler. Unfortunately, they don't have mass adoption. I think if they did have a mass adoption, then the conversation you and I would we'd be having right now would be extremely different if sure. it even needed at all. I think the justices made that decision based on the expectation that Congress was going to do something or that the states were going to cooperate. And I think with two years of hindsight, I think the, uh, unfortunately, I think the Supreme Court might be recognizing, hopefully, that they're paying attention to this issue, that they were looking at it with some pretty rose-tinted glasses. Right. So the takeaway is that if you are not compliant, obviously you should should take some steps to become compliant. And if this is the kind of thing that interests you either as a small business or as a tax professional, you should definitely take a cue from Brad and get involved in some of this advocacy. Not hard. There's a number of organizations that are involved. And again, I'll make sure I post some of those links in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I think that this is a message that has kind of gotten quiet over the past few months, uh, but I do expect that we're going to hear some more. Again, it's not even been a full year since many of the states have changed their their rules. And there's some like in Massachusetts where they're still thinking about how they really want to do it. I think this is going to continue to be an issue that affects a lot of small businesses and professionals across the country. So I really do appreciate your time today and kind of uh, amplifying this message. Well, thank you, Kelly. I appreciate the opportunity to continue the conversation. And I hope you're, uh, hope you're doing well. Thank you. And that will do it for this episode. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at TaxGirl. And you can sign up for my free newsletter at TaxGirl.com. Thanks for listening. Because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them doesn't have to be.